This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be speaking to Lee Mayer of Havenly about why she acquired D2C brand The Citizenry. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including the launch of Fred Siegel Home, a look at the Wild West of online photo theft, and why Unexpected Red has gone viral on social media. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Home's executive editor, Fred Nicholas. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? Doing good. We had our requisite one snow day uh, of the year <laughs> in here in New York over the weekend, which was great. Uh, I saw, at least if Instagram is to be believed, that you spent it at uh, Kit Kemp's newest hotel. Looked amazing. I did, indeed. I decided, you know, it's snowing out there. Let's let's run <laughs> down to Warren Street and stay at a cozy Kit Kemp hotel for the night. And it was lovely. It is a It's a beautiful new space, and it just opened couple weeks ago. I know. Her hotel rooms are so jam-packed with detail. It's like one room has more thoughtful design choices than than most homes, and certainly my home. So <laughs> I look forward to, uh, to checking it out in, in the near future. Uh, but for now, let's talk about Monday's episode, an interview with uh, Suchi Reddy, an architect, designer, and uh, a proponent of the study of neuroaesthetics. Fascinating conversation. Well, and you might hear neuroaesthetics and say, what? What are we talking about? <laughs> but but really, it, it's a conversation around this transformational power that designers have to lift their clients' spirits and, and really transform their lives. And, and guess what? There's science behind it, and it's become part of Suchi's mission to get the word out there about all of this and, and really arm designers with this knowledge and understanding to help them better sell themselves to clients. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And Suchi's done a lot of sort of interesting installations and experiments on the subject over the years. I think, you know, most designers know that good design is good for you, but I think it's really fascinating to have some science to back it up. So if you've been craving that, uh, it's an episode for you. Exactly. The, the science and the and the language around it. I've, I've had several designers write to me already just saying that it was it was so fun for them to to learn about this. So I, I hope that many listen to it and get something meaningful out of it. I hope that uh, healthcare providers will start covering uh, interior design bills soon. <laughs> let's keep working. Let's keep cracking away at that issue and it'll be uh, a deductible expense. <laughs> I am all for that. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump into the news. This podcast is sponsored by Leloy which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year with the debut of its best collection yet, the Heritage Collection. Two years in the making and requiring the invention of new craft techniques, the Heritage Collection creates a power-loomed rug that looks and feels like a true antique. Visit laloyrugs.com to learn more about Heritage and other new collections. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. And follow them on Instagram and TikTok, at Leloy Rugs. Every time we do a new project and something new comes up and we're like, oh, put that in our process. I don't do a discovery call. It's like, you either want me or you don't. In this industry where it's just like, boom, 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 people are coming at you, subcontractors, contractors, vendors. If you're going to be an interior designer, you are a salesperson. If tomorrow the ultimate, most wonderful client came along, that would be great. But if it doesn't happen tomorrow, I'm still going to keep working on the things that I have today. And I'm happy with those things. Hi. 
I'm Caitlin Peterson, the editor-in-chief of Business at Home and the host of Trade Tales. Every other week, I speak with a designer to explore the challenges, pivots, and perspective shifts that come with growing an interior design firm. We talk about how to get billing right and how to build trust, about the difficult clients and the difficult employees, about all of the ways that entrepreneurship will test you, and also all of the ways that it will leave you inspired. To listen, search for Trade Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. First up, a pretty big drop-off in imports, Fred, yes? Yes, the numbers are in, and they're bad. <laughs> According to a, a recent uh, study, furniture imports fell a jaw-dropping 21% in 2023. Um, not unexpected. We all know that last year was a little rough, but certainly puts things in perspective. It does. I mean, it, as you say, we all know last year was a little rough, and so... How much of this is everyone had built up huge inventories that they needed to work off, so they didn't need to import so much. But when you get underneath some of the numbers, it it picks up on a conversation we were having on the last show about people perhaps trying to move away from China as a primary source and look towards Mexico, which was only down, what, 6%? Yeah, right. So China imports from China were down 30%. Vietnam was down 20%, but Mexico is only down 6%, which... You know, speaks to this idea of nearshoring and friendshoring, which is my <laughs> my favorite new term, uh, buddy shoring. Um, but uh, you know, Mexico is still a, a very distant third. You know, most of most of retail furniture is imported from Asia, and it will probably be that way for some years to come. Um, but this just you know this puts a very very nice data point on something that everyone out there has been feeling. Uh, t- times were tough. To me, this says, wow, this is the bottom. <laughs> Look yeah. how terrible those yeah. numbers are, right? And now it's we have nowhere to go but up from here. And it's interesting to see the breakdown of the numbers. But really, it just says, boy, inventory levels are really high. And uh, hopefully, companies have come a long way in working them off. And next year going to be better. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is gall- gallows humor. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I do think there is something kind of funny in, in finding the optimism of, boy, those numbers are bad. <laughs> you know, famous last words, there's nowhere to go but up. But I do think that's true. And you are already seeing the housing numbers rebound. And of course, housing numbers come first, and then you see furniture numbers come up. So I think, you know, I, I believe we're moving in the right direction, at least at that part of the market. Another bit of perspective is that if you look at these numbers, they're heavily down from 2022, but they're actually above 2019 numbers. So even though we've fallen off the cliff from where we were at the peak of the home boom in the pandemic, historically speaking, you know, this business is not really any worse. Indeed, it's a little bit better than it was before COVID. And does all of that make you feel that for all of the ups and downs of the past few years, the market is actually bigger now going forward. I mean, everyone says that, and I have no reason to to think it's not true. I do think that, you know, there's just the natural growth over time. So there's there's that. And, you know, millennials are coming into their home buying years. And so that, you know, if they had any money, certainly they would be (laughs) buying homes. Uh, So I do think that there's like natural demographic reasons why the market is getting bigger. And I also think that, 
you know, we've spent the past couple of years talking about how COVID made everyone refocus on their home as an important part of their lives. And I think that will be true. We're just having a lull in the market right now because nobody can move and money has been tight. But I think once that opens up a little bit, the psychological habits that were picked up in COVID will remain. So I, I don't, I think it's a little bit silly to be like next month, it'll be great. Or in six months, it'll be better. But I do think that there is something lasting that we all picked up in the pandemic that will uh, serve our industry well uh, when when the market turns around, which, as we all know, is just around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I completely agree, and and I I completely buy into. Yes, we pulled an awful lot of business forward, thus the the slowdown and this big drop off. But that the market is definitely bigger than it was before, just perhaps not as big as everyone was hoping it would be forevermore post COVID. Yeah. Moving on, we're going to talk about Fred Siegel Home. Another week, another fashion brand getting into home. This time, it's the iconic Los Angeles retailer Fred Siegel, which just opened up a Fred Siegel Home showroom in the HD Buttercup Center. The launch will feature products from Artimity, Kravitz, Roland Hill, as well as a few interesting curveballs like a high-end Pilates machine and a line of crystals. Fred, what did you what did you make of this announcement? Uh, well, I'm certainly going to be uh, <laughs> heading over there to pick up my Pilates crystals uh, in, in the near future. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I actually don't know Fred Siegel that well. I mean, I'm aware that it's kind of like a cool L.A. fashion retailer. I was tickled to find out that they've uh, they Elvis Presley shop there in the '60s. But y- you're a little bit more familiar with this. Tell me a little bit about the. Give me a little uh, summation of what's so cool about Fred Siegel. Well, you know, it's so interesting because Fred Siegel is widely considered this very chic, cool, hip L.A. brand. It was at one point it was just a blue jeans store when blue jeans were the wild <laughs> craze. And Dennis, it, you sound dangerously <laughs> hip there. Blue it, blue jeans, blue dungarees were <laughs> taking the nation by storm. Well, I mean, it was it was always very cutting edge fashion. I sort of I see it as a, a West Coast equivalent of Barney's in the early days right. of Barney's when it was uh, a bunch of names you probably never heard of from design. And and people were just flocking there to see what was cool and what was fresh, and it, it really had an impact. And then it, it it changed hands a lot of times, and the the name itself kind of bounced around. And and now could could home be a big part of it? You know, maybe. Yeah, and we should say that uh, you know Fred Siegel currently, or at least the brand, belongs to uh, a company called Global Icons, which is one of these uh, brand licensing agencies. They bought it in 2018, I believe. Sandow owned it at one point, didn't they? Am, am, am I right? Well, indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, Adam Sandow had invested in, if if memory serves, the rights to open Fred Siegel stores abroad. I think there was at one point there was this notion that Fred Siegel, the brand, was so strong and powerful. Could they open it up in Japan? Could they open it up in in places where it could just catch fire? And that actually, I think, is the big challenge for Fred Siegel. Does it play well outside of L.A.? Part of me wonders, like, if this was just the coolest fashion retailer in Minneapolis, would we be talking about it? On on some level, is this just like the result of the fact that it's a successful retailer in a place with a lot of celebrities and that kind of gives it a certain cachet? You know, but that's that's clearly not nothing. I mean, Fred Siegel has a license with CB2. You know, the the current owners, Global Icons, clearly are trying to, you know, extract some brand value out of the name. And 
I think the CB2 line is cool. Um, th- this new development is interesting because it's being overseen by uh, Keith Granite, who's this, the founder and CEO of uh, the software company Studio Designer, which many designers will, will know very well. Uh, he's also the founder of the Leaders of Design Council, a, very, a guy who's very much in the interior design world. I, I mean, I honestly, I have no idea if it'll work. I have no idea about the prospects of it, but there is an appetite for high-end retail done very well. I think that there's lots of brands in the middle and doing something like cool and different is always going to always going to appeal. I, I agree. And and the Keith Granite element and the, the many designers that he has worked with over the years is definitely an interesting angle. It sounded also as if they weren't just trying trying to turn it into a big old furniture store yeah. and they weren't trying to do what perhaps BR Home is trying to do or others. Um, it, it sounded like he had a, a much more eclectic vision of it perhaps, but definitely sees designers at the center of, of much of it because he recognizes what an important customer designers are. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, the price point seems high. You know, when you're looking at high-end home goods, you're looking at designers. So it makes <laughs> sense to try and bring them into into the ring. Yeah, I don't know. I'm really curious to see how this goes. It's it's a it's a weird time to be launching a you know a home retail brand, but you know, in, into a difficult market, you can you can make up more ground. So we'll we'll certainly watch it closely. And does it speak again to that optimism about the future, Fred? I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps it does. There we yeah. go. There you go. All right. Next up, Fred, I want to talk about this big story that you wrote about photo theft and the many different elements and angles around it. So where do you want to start? So, yeah, this this story began when I saw that uh, this Tennessee designer uh, named Lindsay Black was posting on social media about this crazy thing that happened to her. So an image from one of her projects, it was actually a, you know, a, rene- a redesign of her own kitchen that she had done, had been photoshopped uh, to advertise some cheap lighting on bedbathandbeyond.com. And as she started looking into it, she found out that the same image had been used in a bunch of different e-commerce retailers like Lowe's and Home Depot and Amazon. It was used all over the Internet. There was there was even like a realtor who was using her kitchen on his Facebook page as part of an advertisement. So uh, she started looking into it. I started looking into it. And that's, uh, you know, I started exploring this whole whole big bad world of designers work getting uh, copied without their permission uh, or payment online. Well, and as you started looking into it, you discover it really is this lawless wild yes. west, right? Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's one of these things that like we all kind of take for granted, uh, but is really actually sort of strange. I mean, if you think about like 20 years ago, certainly, you know, a company that was manufacturing lighting wouldn't think to go through a designer's book, rip out a page, slap it on their packaging and selling in Home Depot. That That would very clearly be illegal and there would be more steps to prevent that from happening. But I think because sharing images online in a way is inseparable from the internet. I mean, like so much of the internet is just sharing photos online. Everyone has kind of gotten used to this climate where there's no rules around it. All it takes is a right click to copy something. It's incredibly difficult to police. Most people don't have the time, energy or money to bring a lawsuit around it. So we really do live in this climate where pretty much anything you post on the internet gets reused in some way. And and designers tend to find this out kind of the hard way. And designers and and the poor photographers, right, right, whose whose work is being posted all over the place, and to your point, without any compensation. And this is is one of the reasons that photographers have just talked about what a frustrating time this is to be in this business, right? Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, you know, because this example, this designer in, in Tennessee, who's, you know, the her work had been copied by kind of like a fly by night lighting vendor and 
you know, that's sort of an interesting example, but really the far more common thing is that a photographer will take, you know, a beautiful image of a designer's project and then a brand will see that their product is in it and will then share that image on their own website. Now that sounds kind of harmless, like, oh, we're just celebrating everybody's work and here's your credit and all that. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that historically a photographer would get paid for. And so I think that kind of culture creates a lot of weird complexity because of course the photographer doesn't want to call out the brand because maybe one day the brand will hire that photographer. So (laughs) there's a a very complicated culture around it. And I know photographers are are sort of frustrated by it. Um, And I think it's, you know, as you pointed out, it's really photographers who own the copyright to these images. That's another weird little wrinkle here is that I think a lot of designers think, oh, well, this is my project. So I should be paid for this. But really the, the legal asset that is you know, usually licensable is the photograph, which is owned in most cases by the photographer. Well, exactly. And and I feel like Douglas Friedman, the photographer, when we had him on the show, he talked about this and he, he made it sound as if he had an army of lawyers who were just sitting there waiting for one of his pictures to show up in the wrong place so that they could send a cease and desist order or perhaps show up at somebody's door. And and often, of course, it was some kitchen brand and it and it was some big company that just said, oh, this is a great shot. They look, look, there's a our product. But also Jill Cohen talked to us about many times, even a designer, as you were saying, doesn't realize that they might have given uh, the rights to use it in their book or it might maybe in a magazine, but there's a whole host of other contracts around where a photograph requires additional compensation for a photographer. And that's often not clear to people. No, agreed. And I think it. the problem is just that the, the pace and cadence of photo sharing on the internet is so rapid that our legal system around who has permission to do what hasn't really caught up with it, nor has the economic structure of paying photographers and designers properly. You know, there was a system that worked for a long time and then the internet came along and broke it. And I think everybody's kind of figuring out how it all works. And I think that's what, that's why you see these examples of theft and lawsuits. And it's, uh, it's certainly a, a system that has not totally worked itself out yet. Well, and did you walk away with a sense that any, meaningful change was coming or that stronger laws or or regulations were being put in place? You mentioned Douglas Friedman talked about his team of lawyers. <laughs> I spoke to a company called Image Rights International, and basically all they do is scour the internet for examples of you know, infringing on a photographer's copyright, send a letter to the person who posted it, and then sue them if they don't pay a fee. So there are organizations like that that are policing the internet. Uh, The last thing I'll say is just that like one thing that several people brought up with me is that you can sort of push back on this by being careful about where your images are. Lindsay, uh, she's not totally sure about this, but she thinks that the reason why her her kitchen was copied so much is because she had it on house. Once your images are on one of these platforms, they're harder to control and put a ring fence around. So, you know, they may be, that may be worth it for the exposure, but it's something to keep in mind uh, when you're posting images online that, you know, putting something on your site is very different than sharing it on house. Well, and I feel like we... We covered that a while back, yes, about hows and about how they, I don't think they had a contract per se, right? But they had this understanding that if you put an image up there, it was basically theirs, yes? Yeah, it's complicated and, you know, lacking a law degree, I'm a little bit wary of getting <laughs> getting too into the weeds. Hows' terms of service is several, several pages long. I think Hows got into trouble because they were using designers' photographs uh, to sell product against, and mm-hmm. that was what got designers so angry. 
I think in 2020, House said it rolled back that program and allowed designers to opt out of it. But I do think at the end of the day, if you upload your image to a platform, they do have the right to reproduce it in various contexts. So whether they do certain things or don't do certain things, once you upload an image to one of these platforms, you do lose a certain amount of control over it. So, you know, certainly look over the terms of service carefully, talk to your lawyer if you're really concerned about it. But I think it's just a general rule of thumb that like, you do lose some control when you post to a platform. So if that's a concern, then don't do it. No, no. Great point. Okay, moving on, we're going to talk about unexpected red <laughs> and uh, and how TikTok has been positively abuzz over the unexpected red theory, the notion that you can improve the design of any room by adding in a mismatched pop of red. The concept originated from a video posted by Brooklyn designer Taylor Simon, which has since been viewed over a million times. I, I think we have that video, yes? The unexpected red theory is basically adding anything that's red, big or small, to a room where it doesn't match at all and it automatically looks better. Here's an example. I mean, these things have no business being red, but automatically looks better. Normally, you wouldn't think to pair red and purple together, but I'm petitioning for red to be a neutral color because it just looks good with everything. This has to be my favorite. I mean, this Victorian painting has no business having a red frame, but it automatically updates it and makes it look so fresh. What do you think, Dennis? Are you a believer in unexpected red and <laughs> conspiracy theory of unexpected red? Petitioning for red to be a neutral color. That is, <laughs> that is, a, that is a strong statement. I I feel like this has been around for a long time, and and I recently saw that uh, designer Sheila Bridges was posting some of her old TV show back from 2004, where she was showing people, if you brought in a little bit of red into a room, look how it changes <laughs> it. So, I mean, I, I do think this notion has been around, and there does seem to be some validity to how it changes the look and feel, Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think two things there. One, yeah, this is to say that this is like a new viral trend is is a little yes. absurd. I mean, the, the, adding a pop of red is is a tale as old as time in, in interior design, and I think that uh, Sheila Bridges rightly pointed that out. So it's funny that it's getting turned into this cool Gen Z trick. Um, but uh, I have to say, actually, I'm a believer in the unexpected red theory. I really do think there's something about uh, maybe we should get Suchi ready back to explain scientifically why red is uh, such a powerful color. It just color. made us happy all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I, I do think it. I do think there's something to that. I have to say, I'm with you too. So I'm normal, normally skeptic of such things but uh, but I'm I'm a believer in the in the power of red. I put a little red pocket square in my pocket just for this show, Fred, <laughs> to just give you a little little joy, a little uplift right there. Uh, but I think there definitely is something something to it. Yeah, I mean I think the other angle to this story is just simply, you know, and we've talked about this before and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but how these little trendlets become really big on social media and then they become adopted by traditional media. I, you were just saying that, what was it, British House and Garden had an article about yes. unexpected red, and, you know, the New York Times wrote an article about unexpected red, and it was interesting. One of the one of the people, you know, behind one of these micro trend videos on TikTok was talking about how there's this incentive to be the first person to post about a new aesthetic like bookshelf wealth or, you know, all these all these uh, movements that seem to come and go. And it's just it's just an interesting little ecosystem where TikTok creators are incentivized to come up with a cool trend. Legacy media is incentivized to write an article about it, which they can then use affiliate links to sell red mirrors or whatever. Brands are incentivized to treat it like a 
trend. So there's this kind of system, corrupt system that's complicit in creating these micro trends. But I don't know. I still I still find them fun, even though they're a little ridiculous. Well, I think it's so amusing, too, that in the early days of this show, we were talking about TikTok and asking people routinely if they felt the design industry should be paying attention to TikTok. And I, I think it was Assad Sirket from El Decor who yeah. said, absolutely, I think it's important for people to be paying attention to TikTok. And so if this is how a lot of people are learning about interior design or trends or uh, pops of color and, and what that can do for you, uh, I'm I'm all for it. And so I think it's another reason why TikTok is just something that you want to pay attention to and can be a fun way for information like this to spread. Yeah, it's also interesting how the, you know, the core idea that a little bit of red goes a long way gets repackaged in different eras and different formats. You know, I can almost visualize a House Beautiful article from 2011 or something talking about pops of red. And then, of course, run through TikTok. It's like it's a theory, the unexpected red. It's like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> or something like that. So it'll be, it's interesting just to see how these, I, I don't want to say they're like timeless principles, but these classic ideas of design get repackaged in different uh, mediums. So can't wait to see uh, what TikTok uh, says about how uh, mirrors uh, make a small space feel bigger. I'm sure there's a big conspiracy theory <laughs> around that as well coming coming down the pike soon, but stay tuned. We look forward to that. All right, that's it for the news, but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com including a guide to sustainable shopping for appliances and advice from Sean Lowe on what to do if another designer takes credit for your work. We'll be back in a minute, but first, a quick break. Demonstrating its commitment to healthy communities, the design industry, and the environment, Leloy recently launched Love Leloy. The three pillars of Love Laloy guide the company's efforts to create safe and responsibly made products through the supply chain, foster safe and loving homes, and remove barriers to design-oriented careers. Learn more at laloyrugs.com and follow them on Instagram and TikTok at laloyrugs for the latest news. So we're back. I am joined by Lee Mayer, the CEO of Havenly, who's got some news to share with us this morning. Lee, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you back on the show. Last time you were here, we were talking about another acquisition that you had made. And I, I want to do a quick check-in on that before we talk about the latest. So... We were chatting about Interior Define, and you were taking on some of the assets and some of the headaches and some of the challenges of it all. How is it going a year later? Great question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> loaded one, but a good one. Um, yes, we did. We took on some of the assets. I'd say all of the headaches, which, again, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure that I was fully prepared for. Um, but overall, you know, I think I'm, I'm fairly proud of how the team handled that acquisition. It was a tough one. You know, in, in some ways, I think most people thought I was, you know, pretty, pretty crazy. You know, I think. Well, there were some skeptics, <laughs> there, right? There, there were, were some lot, people there were who a were lot wondering. Of, there were more, yeah. more than a few skeptics. Um, a year later, you know. We've done what we could have. We were able to sort of resurrect the brand, um, reopen stores, bring the team sort of back to a good spot. 
you know, rethought the supply chain, just, you know, did a lot over the last year. I won't say it's a slam dunk for us right now, but I think it was a very accretive uh, buy. We spent probably a full six months in like what I called the darkness, <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying, to, trying to sort everything out. Sure. So there was a lot, a lot of work and unfortunately a lot of dollars that went into it. But I, I think we're very pleased with how ultimately it's turning out. And, you know, frankly, it's made us bullish to do more. That's been kind of the exciting part of the story. It didn't, it didn't quite scare me off, uh, you know, the, the idea of acquiring other companies. So what made you bullish about acquiring other companies? So, you know, Dennis, I, I will say, you know, one of the maybe the things about me that maybe isn't very well known is I'm not particularly well qualified to run a home furnishings business. <laughs> I, I, that news is just getting out. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Um, I've never done this before. But what I have done before is actually a decent amount of mergers and acquisitions. And it's very rare you see a merger thesis actually play out, right? And I had a very simple merger thesis or acquisition thesis around Havenly. And that is, if you sort of think about the customer and you're able to sort of sell around that customer, in other words, understand what the customer wants and needs, and then find other opportunities, other categories, other brands that sort of resonate with that customer. Because of the way the customer buys around home, you can actually potentially reduce you know, sort of financially, um, the strain of customer acquisition and ultimately make a sort of very, you know, again, build this sort of design first ecosystem around this customer. So the thing about home that occurred to me sort of somewhere in 2020, 2021, when acquisition costs really skyrocketed is the most frustrating thing about the home furnishing space is at any given point in time, 14 out of 15 people that I reach, I'm not relevant for. You're just not buying stuff in the same way mm. for your home. However, I call it like the New York City taxi cab. When the light is on, like the light's on, it's, a, it's an extremely strong signal around home furnishings, right? When you're buying a sofa, it is highly likely you're also buying rugs and bedding and pillows and other decor. When you're buying interior design services, obviously very, very highly likely that you're buying other things around the home. And again, it was sort of an interesting sort of thought process. Like we're, you know, all these brands are sort of sitting out there acquiring the same customer. So we're paying Meta six times over or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, like if we can really be thoughtful about what is selling to this customer, then we can sort of own that entire process. And so from our perspective, we got really excited about the fact that we can use what we think is, is sort of a critical asset for Havenly, which again is like this incredible customer insight, and start to assemble a portfolio of brands around this customer, increasing sort of hopefully our ability to serve that customer and in doing so, improve sort of the economic model within the business, particularly in a world in which, again, customer acquisition cost is, I'd say, the downfall of many in, in the space. Well, and, and, and the downfall, I mean, of, of the D2C space in, in general, in right? General. So yeah. you, you, yeah. you look around all these companies, the, so many of them that rushed to go public have lost at least 50% of their values. Tremendous going amount of public, value. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's been, I mean, you know, DTC writ large, it's been an incredibly challenged sector, um, which is kind of entertaining. I mean, the consumer is still there, right? Like, you know, consumer spending really hasn't fallen off. Right. Uh, this isn't like crypto. It's not like something sort of, you know, these aren't apes in yacht costumes. These are, <laughs> these are sofas. They're rugs. Like people need sofas and rugs. Um, it's a different sort of space 
um, as you think about, you know, the appeal to the consumer. And I think one of the more interesting things is like what we did, I think, with direct to consumer is we displaced a lot of the cost of, say, fixed retail, right? Mm. And we moved it, you know, sort of online, theoretically, because it's more trackable. Um, it's also to some degree fungible, right? And that was more appealing to so many of us. But in doing so, again, we increased the, you know, we increased the cost of marketing so much that it made it nearly untenable. I mean, it really is, you know, as, as I look at sort of the brand's and I, I get my inbox is, is full of brands these days that are sort of looking to for their next chapter. And you, and you look at the acquisition cost, and you start to think about it. Um, it. It really is sort of, you know, again, an untenable proposition for so many of the brands that have come up in the last five to 10 years. You know, look, it's not the biggest part. It's, it's not the only part of our thesis, but I think the reduction in how we're able to kind of think about acquiring the customer has been... A big part of the thesis and and a part of the thesis that seems to be bearing itself out. Well, and and is part of the thinking, are you feeling as though with with Havenly and with Interior Define, you've got this customer and you've learned that they have all sorts of other needs while they're talking to you. And so rather than rather than having to throw more money at getting new customers, what more can we do with these existing customers? Is that sort of your, your thinking? Yeah, it's it's yes, that is very much our thinking. I think it's, you know, we spend so much time and energy trying to understand who this customer is. I mean, particularly like you think about design services, it's a very personal approach. These are human, you know, we've talked about this before. This is not AI. These, these are human beings that are yeah. working with you one-on-one to try and understand what you like and don't like. We do have, you know, technology that sort of synthesizes that data for us, but but really we spend so much time trying to get it right. I think in, Interior Divine is another one where we're, we're literally building custom sofas. You know, we are, we know a lot about you in that process. And so, you know, as we think about that relationship, what we're realizing is, there's so much more we can do with sort of that investment. And I think, by the way, I think it's good for the consumer. I think it's, you know, it's good for the client. I think it's, and, and hopefully by doing, by doing that, we're, we're sort of doing the right things for the business as well. Okay. So to sort of put a bow around Interior Define, six months of in the wilderness and the darkness <laughs> and, and trying to, to sort out everything that's on fire and, and yeah. trying to fulfill as many orders as you, as you could and having to make tough decisions around all of that. You decided to keep the name. You decided to, to plow forward with it all. I know you were at one point thinking, oh, do I, do I want to stay with this? And, <laughs> um, but, but so much had been invested in building, I assume, the brand recognition around that, yeah. that, that perhaps you decided it was, it was worth just keeping it thus. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're still. I, I, I told <laughs> we're you, still I, I'm on the fence. <laughs> okay. the fence. We're. Uh, I'm just not a fan of that name. I don't know what it is. Um, that being said, yeah, you know, look, my husband has barely forgiven me for that six month period of time, um, but where he didn't get to see you. I'm, I'm yes. assuming it, the yes. family suffered, yeah. and yes. yeah, yeah, it's like you know, the kid didn't sure. recognize me anymore. You know that kind of thing. Um, and but but six months. From that, I think mm. in hindsight, we're seeing a lot of a lot of the fruit of that effort. And it seemed as though the the product was so good in some people's minds that they went through that process with you and and wanted to continue to be a customer. It sounds like. 
I think so. I mean, you know, I think all of the brands that we've acquired, I have personal conviction in the product. I think that sort of mass affluent custom furnishings segment is one that just, you know, is it's frankly a segment that like wasn't quite being addressed by other folks in the market. And as a result, I think Interior Define, you know, as we look at the business, it has like a very clear value proposition for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and, as, and again, as you think about who is the next generation of home customers, that's who Interior Define targets, right? It's, it's potentially, you know, certainly not the highest end. And, and, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, Wayfair either, not, you know, Wayfair is some nice stuff. Sorry. Don't, don't mean to insult right. you. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's intended to be a, a very sort of broad, have, have a lot of broad appeal for, again, a generation that's used to shopping just a little bit differently. Um, and so I think that's really, it's really been, it's, it's been a sticky value proposition throughout, I think, a lot of the noise of the last year. Have we won everyone back over? No, I know that, you know, we'll, we'll continue to try sort of one sofa at a time <laughs> um, to do so. But, you know, I, I, I think we've done, uh, you know, a lot of the right things by the brand and the underlying value prop for me um, was a very clear one and, se- and seems to be, again, very attractive to the customer we serve. So you you come out of the dark period and you feel okay I'm I'm ready for the next acquisition and you're getting all these pitches everyone's sending you companies <laughs> there's never been more companies in so the home companies. space so right many. that seem like they are priced to move yeah. and looking for a new owner for for a host of reasons and I and I want to talk about stuff. that with mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Uh, but first of all let's tell people what the citizenry is yeah. and what it's represented for you for a long time and yeah. and why it rose to the top of the list for you. Sometimes you get a lot of pitches in your inbox and some of them, you know, have been announced as deals. There were a lot in my, my inbox that were sort of like, yeah, you know, for the right price, maybe this makes sense. Mm. But I just couldn't get particularly excited about it. And I think that's maybe either going to be my downfall or the reason that Havenly succeeds. I think I just have you know, deal, all deals are hard, right? Like this deal was hard. And the reality is I find myself sort of unwilling to like partner deeply with someone that I don't have, again, a lot of personal conviction around. And that was sort of what was happening. I, I'd call it sometime in September or October where I'd talk to a bunch of companies. No one really, you know, I, I guess we threw in some offers here and there to folks that you might know. Um, Did you think about scooping up Mitchell Gold at some point? Did you think about swooping in? And- <laughs> No comments. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but look, I, I I think there were conversations all over around a lot of sure. things. And sure. and so in September, October, I started to think about, A, the categories I thought Havenly, you know, w- with the Havenly data and the Havenly interior find and inside business, we felt like we weren't quite covering and that I thought there was an opportunity. And what brands or companies got me really excited about, again, sort of sort of surrounding the customer with 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 you know product that I could really believe in, right? Like that was right. that was sort of like the the ultimate genesis of this. And the citizenry, um, I've known it for a long time. I was really impressed by the commitment to ethical sourcing, sort of the, the artisan story. I guess maybe interestingly, um, I am the child of Indian immigrants and have always been 
really intrigued by that country's sort of heritage and textiles. And I loved the way that the citizenry uh, team was able to sort of pull that story to the forefront, um, not just in India, but across many of the other yeah. regions they're sourcing from. Like, so Carly and Rachel were not in my inbox. I flew down to Dallas ostensibly to visit the uh, Art Dallas Interdefined location, which I hadn't seen. And, you know, invited them to chat. We went out for a drink. It drink turned into like a few hours of talking and discussions. Um, and I called Rachel maybe a week or two later and was like, you know, we should really, we should really think about this. Um, and so I would say slightly different, you know, it wasn't not a hot dumpster fire. So right. So they weren't in a distressed situation. No, this, was no. a, this was a different kind. And but so why were they more open to this discussion? You know, I I think what is happening right now across the industry is there is a benefit around consolidation. And particularly when you're a subscale, so you're sub, call it 100 or $75 million in revenue, it's a little bit harder to go it alone. Um, so all of the costs that you think about when you're bringing sort of product to customers go down with scale. So that can be supply chain, that can be acquisition costs, that can be the cost of retail, that can be, you know, frankly, even even things like your your team overhead, sort of the amount that you ultimately end up taking on um, from, from an operational load perspective goes up as you get smaller. And I think in a world in which there's not a ton of capital out there, right, and you have to run in a lean and profitable way, um, it can be extremely my guess is lonely and tiring doing it yourself. Sure. Um, and a lot of the reasons, and again, I'm, I don't want to speak for Rachel and Carly. They have certainly their own stories and, and they both have sort of slightly different stories as well around why I think this made sense for them personally. But I think, I think as you think about it from a business perspective, you know, you often started these businesses thinking that you'd get 10x forward revenue multiples um, and you'd exit and become a billionaire. And and the market has changed such that like the reality is it's a far more reasonable uh, market that values slightly different things. And, and again, going it alone um, doesn't always make as much sense as potentially partnering with a larger platform that can hopefully bring a little bit more to the whole than just mm. the individual, you know, the individual parts. And so, I think that's where I was able to um, hopefully help them understand and appreciate <laughs> what we could bring to to the table. I think personally, I really just appreciate both of them. They're talented women that I'm excited to partner with. And, you know, we were able to come up with a deal that worked for me and worked for them and, and hopefully give a lot of love to the citizenry platform. So expand it, not shrink it, you know, and hopefully use some of the assets that we have around Havenly and the other brands that we've acquired to expand their customer base as well. And let's let's talk about where Havenly is today. When last we spoke, Havenly was becoming this this great big interior design firm and and had become something different than what I think you had originally imagined. Where does that stand today? How are you thinking about it? I think the idea of building sort of a portfolio brands that targets a very similar customer has been around for a long time, not doing anything new. I think what's interesting, I think, as, as I think about how we've sort of tactically started to think about the business is design and 
customer preferences is sort of at the center of it because of the Havenly design services business. What we think about a lot is where are our trends going again for this customer? What do we know about this? What do we know about, about our designers um, that help us understand what we should be offering, who we should be partnering with, what we should be designing, et cetera. And, and those are the, that design first ecosystem is something that we're really passionate about building. Again, I think there's a generational shift in home. We see it in the data, right? So millennials, that digital first generation is, is uh, you know, the majority of home mortgage originations, right? Um, which probably means they're about to become at least the plurality of home furnishing spend. And when you think about that generation, every other vertical they've touched has experienced a remarkable and, and kind of consequential shift in both the types of brands that are now at the forefront of the conversation, as well as sort of the economic models underneath those categories. And I think home is no different. Um, it's maybe later because, you know, just people age into home in a different way. But as that millennial consumer and that digital consumer becomes, uh, you know, the majority of how we think about home and home furnishings, I think it's a once in a generation opportunity to sort of come in and, you know, have a portfolio of brands that, that are fresh, that, that, that come with the ethos of that customer and really speak to them in a different way. Let's get back to where we are right now in terms of why there are so many businesses. Again, whether they're all in some level of distress, it just seems like there are many businesses, yeah. right, that are available for sale or are looking for a partner or, and again, there's always the category of my son or daughter doesn't want the business, can you come? Yeah, yeah. Right? There's always yeah, those people. That's normal, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, normal. But, but there's an awful lot of businesses that are out there for sale. And and I'm sure you kicked the tires on, on a lot of them over the past year. Yeah, I have. And it's an intriguing time because of this, right? I I think uh, two years ago, if I had approached another venture back company, and I did, you know, as you probably know, I tried to I tried to acquire Interred Fine years before yeah. their you know their, their sort of <laughs> distress. Uh, it was it was nearly impossible to do. Like you had two cap tables, you know, lots of structure underneath that, lots of egos and and sort of fun dynamics that like prevented you from doing deals that felt reasonable. And I think what's interesting about today is um, that's not the case. So I think there are kind of three types of companies right now in the direct-to-consumer space. And I think this is maybe a broad generalization, but, you know, so there's, there's you know, category called one, which is like not distressed, not looking. Like, you know, and, and I put Havenly there, um, but it's like, it's like, you know what, we're fine. We've got, you know, capital, we're, you know, sustainable or profitable. We feel like we've got a great path to exit or a good path to exit. We feel solid. Category two would be, I'm not distressed, but I don't have a ton of gas left in the tank. And I, I don't see a path to a really lucrative exit on my own. Like we need to do something and I want to do it before I'm distressed, which is by the way, a very smart place to be. So that's category two. Category three, you're kind of screwed, right? Like you're out of cash. Maybe you've got leverage. Someone's pulling funding. We've seen this again. These are these are the bigger flameouts that we've seen. Like I'm done. Um, I've laid off 
75% of a team or I have to, you know, that, that's kind of like, or, or I shut down the next day, I'll have Mitchell Gold, Bob Williams. And I think what's really interesting is what I'm seeing is a lot of businesses that used to think they were in category one slipping to two, a lot of businesses that are in category two sort of slipping into three because they weren't able to get something done or one to three or something, you know, so there's, there's this element of like, we're all taking a really hard look at where we are really and practically speaking what we need to do not just to like land the plane but like are the economics in the business still there and and attractive enough for me as ceo to continue running this business alone so one other interesting thing is again this is like sort of the nuance of of venture capital but you could have taken so much money that in order for you the ceo to make one red cent on the business you'd have to sell at such a high multiple that it's like just not practical in the next 2 to 5 right. years and so those are the kinds of conversations i think a lot of ceos are having you're seeing a lot of like new ceos come in so there's a lot of replacements going on which you can you can look at publicly and probably get a get a sense for you know you're seeing a lot of uh, you know founders exit because again they're Either they're not there or the economics aren't there. Remember, a lot of us don't take salaries or if we take them, they're sort of below market. Sure. Uh, and, so, and so there's a lot of that kind of like, you know, I'd say a, a rethink um, uh, amongst a lot of these companies and their boards around whether or not, again, there's a standalone entity. Are we actually really screwed? Are we are we good? You know, are we, do we have gas in the tank? Can we figure it out? And so lots of interesting conversations. I've looked at a lot of companies. I haven't looked at everything, but I've looked at a lot of companies. I have no intention of buying everyone. By the way, these deals are actually exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, but I, I do think that there is a decent amount of, you know, of, of interesting opportunities out there. And I'm, I'm perfect. You know, there are a couple of us and I'd say we're, we're all perfectly excited to pursue the ones that make sense. Well, I mean, yeah, and we and we listen, and we saw the company that did ultimately acquire at least the intellectual property of Mitchell Gold yeah. and Surya yeah. is an yeah. example. He's he's made it very clear that he's wants to make acquisitions and feels like this is a great time. It's a buyer's market, it is. and right, and there seem to be plenty of others that are that are looking at these at these deals that that make sense. And I wondered about. Listen, rates are suddenly creeping back higher a little bit, unfortunately, because the economy, right, still, <laughs> still looks kind of strong, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And so yeah. everyone who thought that this was going to be the year of five, yeah. six, seven rate cuts, they're, they've been proven wrong. And so suddenly yeah. you look out a year and it looks very different than what a lot of people were imagining just a few months ago, even. Yeah. And maybe everyone's worked through a lot of inventory. We saw imports drop dramatically, drop, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. people had a lot of inventory. They didn't, they didn't need a lot of imports, right? Yeah, they didn't. So, right. But, but do people feel, so this whole notion of, oh, survive to 25 and then thrive. I mean, are people <laughs> thinking that prosperity is just around the corner or is the truth that a lot of the people that you're talking to don't actually feel like maybe we've seen in 21 the best time we're ever going to see in our lifetime and maybe that business is never coming back to that level and we deluded ourselves with this notion of the decade of home and we got all carried away thinking that people were going to care about home <laughs> in this way that was transformative and the truth is we're back to just being the same old cyclical boom bust business we always were. I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? I, I do think okay. the importance of home has has probably increased to some degree. Um, I mean, I'm at home. I used to never work at home, right? Like the, right. those are, those are the t for good reason. By the way, if you look to my left, you'll understand why we used <laughs> to never work from home. But I think one of the things that is 
in my personal opinion, and again, one woman's mm. opinion, was overblown, is that it's going to be some sort of like depth function change, um, the likes of which we've never seen before and which will shield us from, I think, to your point, the normal sort of boom and bust cycles of business. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I think 2021, particularly if you're a consumer business or frankly, any venture-backed business, any business that was valued on growth and revenue as opposed to profitability, I do not think that you will see those multiples again for another five to 10 years. Like I, I just, 2021 was an anomaly. Um, I don't know that it's happening yet. Now will home get back to what I'd call normal? Yeah, I, I think that mm. that's probably true. Does that cure all of the evils that have come from the overhyped cycle of 2021 where again, people maybe overinvested, took on too much capital, whatever it was. For some companies, I'm sure it will, right? So companies in particular that hadn't touched venture capital, so your some of your incumbents, et cetera, um, I think they'll be fine. You know, I don't worry about RH. I'm guessing RH doesn't worry about RH. Right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, know. maybe they need to slow the European expansion a little bit, but otherwise, yeah, sure, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, although yeah, although if, I, if I get the invite to the Cotswolds, I'm taking it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, but I think there are that hope that that this like frenetic demand will continue or, you know, we just took a two-year pause and then we'll go back to 2021, I think is, is a hope. Um, I don't know. If I were a betting gal, I wouldn't bet on that one. Um, now, I know better than to prognosticate around the Federal Reserve. Like those are people with incredibly large brains that do what they need to do to to sure. figure things out. And so, you know, there is this possibility that as you know, if interest rates do ultimately drop over the next couple of years, that you'll see again a little bit more of the pent up demand that has existed come back. And you might see sort of an interesting upswing um, because there is pent up demand. I mean, you could talk to real estate agents today and they'll tell you like there are a bunch of people that have been waiting on the sidelines for two years Absolutely. hoping to buy a home. Yeah. And this year might actually be a good year. And so, you know, I think I think you might see a little bit of a pendulum swift the other way. I just don't know that it will ever quite be like what you saw in 2020 and 2021. Well, and, and again, all joking aside, I imagine that that's really discouraging for some people who are thinking long-term about their business, right? Yeah. I, I've seen the best that perhaps in in, in my life cycle, right? Yeah. And, and so maybe that's another reason for them to just say, hey, come and take a look at my business, maybe take it off my hands. Yeah, I, I let, let me try good... something else. Or, or honestly, right. some of it's just like, I don't want to do this alone anymore. Like I want a yeah. real leadership team around me. Um, where I think there's still a lot of softness is, um, is that sort of subscale often those brands took external capital in, in the 2020-21 time period, don't have a broader platform, sort of fighting it out on their own. There's an interesting dynamic that's happening right now where your investors don't want to put more capital in. So what you have in the bank is what you have in the bank. Right. Um, I, I love that, by the way. It, um, I've talked to a couple of companies where like their board won't let them sell but they also won't support them beyond just give like, them any more money. Yeah, like it's like it's like they're <laughs> like, yeah, we're kind of done, but like, no, yeah. no, we won't let you right. sell. Um, right. And and like that's just bad behavior. Apart from that, like I think I think a lot of those are, are going to get cleared out over the next six months. Either you know get consolidated or figure out a way to do it on their own, or and and you know maybe maybe even do what we're doing to some degree. And some of them sadly will go out of business. And and again, that's that's sort of like the natural cycle sometimes around around these things. Although obviously sad, I think for the industry writ large. Does putting the citizenry in place for you 
now as as this third acquisition for you does it make you feel okay now we've got enough scale that we can look at yet another acquisition in a in a relatively short period of time that also helps us in that in that same way we're definitely still looking i mean you know we'll we'll continue to press a little bit um no promises um if if the <laughs> if the handful that i'm super excited about don't come to fruition i you know i'll be on the podcast for something else um and so we know we have to speed up you know what we're working on and so more likely than not you're going to see us in the market again this year and if not you know we're probably out for a little bit right because it just gets that much harder to make those deals happen and unfortunately for me i did not raise a billion dollars in 2021 so i you know i don't i don't quite have the cash to to sort of continue in a frothier market well and and that was that was one of my questions too was if it's actually been quite a while since you've raised money in this world Publicly, right. yes. Publicly announced <laughs> yes. funding. Right. Has been, has well, and, and, yeah. and is yeah. that, has that been better for you to, to not make these big public announcements about funding yes. rounds and yeah, yes. we, we chose that strategy, I think, at some point. There was such craziness in the news cycle in 2021. And one of the things that I think, you know, sort of, I, you know, I think I've touched on this, but but it's sort of in in the mix is if you raised a lot of money in 2021, that means your preference stack is so high that it's nearly impossible to see a path towards, again, an exit that makes sense. And and so like I you start to realize that like the news hype cycle was all around how much money you raised. But ultimately in the post-COVID years, it's been a strategic advantage to not have raised that much money. Now, don't get me wrong, I was extremely upset that I wasn't able to raise that kind of money. This is not, I love to say that like, this was Lee being smart. This wasn't, people didn't want to fund me. It's people fine. People didn't want to hand the darn money over. It's fine. Yes. Um, so, but like ultimately it's ended up being a little bit of an advantage for us because our valuations are reasonable, uh, which makes, you know, raising capital a little bit more reasonable and not that we've raised a ton, but we have, we've had to. Um, and so, you know, I think, one of the lessons, I suppose, of being around, you know, at least one, you know, sort of boom and bust cycle is, is you start to see that like nothing's ever as good as you think it is and nothing's ever as bad as you think it is. There's, there's usually like a flip to every good. And I think, and I think again, on, from my side, like I was really kind of sad about 2021 for me, like for us, we, we raised a little bit of money, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't what I saw my friends go out and do. And you know, ultimately, I don't. I don't have what what is like a really hard task that some of them are facing right now of growing into a valuation that doesn't make sense, or trying to fight a cap stack that is impossible to fight, etc. And and honestly, like, there's a bit of the you know, I think it's Warren Buffett's like, be greedy when others are fearful, fearful when others are greedy. I think this is my attempt at at following. Uh, his advice and and sort of wow. being like, look, like this is the category in which I'm in. Everyone else is staying on the sidelines. What a great opportunity for me to settle down. The Mitchell Gold and and Klossner and some of these other big furniture companies and upholstery companies made us feel as though the the problems were really in that furniture space. But the home world is a broad world and and there are lots of challenges facing many other related type companies can you see yourself buying a fabric company can you see yourself bu- i mean is there a synergy to be had with what you with what you've already got in in place is i guess what i'm wondering we've thought about it i mean i think i think one of the things that i think 
is important in a company of our size is just focus. So what mm. what makes the most sense right now? So, you know, manufacturers, for example, is like an interesting category that we sort of thought about. Like it certainly makes sense, particularly at some level of scale. And we're probably approaching that scale where, you know, maybe having some captive manufacturing makes a ton of sense. Now, here's the challenge. I don't have any expertise in manufacturing. I've never done it. You keep I, telling like, me you don't have this expertise. <laughs> like, I mean, but like I like I like don't even know if I like it. Like I I don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. But like the I think the point is is like in order to do that, I'd have to have like a fully functioning team come along with one of those acquisitions. When you're looking at distress, you don't get fully functioning teams. So this has been the challenge. So when we look at right. these companies, what you're saying is right. just it's a distressed company. And that means like their team has gone through the gamut of not great things and they probably won't be retained or retainable. And so you're kind of starting from scratch. And so something like manufacturing, like, look, designing, making furniture and selling it on the internet, I could do that all day long. That's, that's great. Running a, like an efficient manufacturing operation, whether it's here or overseas, is like a very different thing. We can't afford, unfortunately, a at this point in time, we don't have the cash or, or the balance sheet to sort of afford what I'd call a fully functioning, uh, healthy unit. So we're looking at distress, and again, like the the the, the challenge there has just been, I you know, I can't sort of figure out a way to make it work. That being said, are we still looking? Of course, you know, we've looked a little bit at fabrics, we've looked a little bit at at a whole bunch of categories that are a little bit different. Um, nothing sort of made it off the, made it out of my inbox yet, but, uh, okay. but you never know, okay. you know? I, I feel North Carolina is calling you in some way, Lee. I, just <laughs> I, feel... I, I you know, I, I just bought a, I just bought a house in South Carolina, which is not North Carolina. Okay. I recognize that, but okay. you know, just broad, broad region. Um, so you never know. Well, I think, the, I think the Carolinas, a place yeah. where perhaps a lot more of your time is going to be spent yeah. in, the, in the year or two ahead. Uh, it, it certainly wouldn't surprise us. Uh, listen, thank you so much for taking the time with everything that you've got going on and congratulations on the new acquisition. Thank you again. Great to be here. Thank you. And we're back. We're getting to the end of the show here. But before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred, what's caught your eye? This week, Spoken has caught my eye. Are you familiar with this business, Dennis? I am, but only loosely. So tell me more. Yeah, so this, this is something we profiled in 2022 around the time that it first launched. What it is, is it's a, it's, an, it's a website and it's kind of like a platform that what they do is they identify uh, a white labeled piece of home furniture. So let's say that there's a... You know, an accent table that, uh, you know, is being sold through Wayfair, Amazon and Lulu in Georgia. They identify, you know, the piece and then put them all in the same place along with pricing together. So it's a, a way for consumers to shop for, you know, basically comparison shop apples to apples for, for furniture that's white labeled across multiple retailers. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, it's certainly all retailers probably hate this because I think it what it what it does is it just puts the Google reverse image search in one convenient place and I'm sure designers don't love it either uh, because you know nothing is worse than having a client digging around trying to find uh, you know a, a throw pillow for 18 cents less than the price provided by a designer but I do think it's important to talk about the, these are the tools that consumers are excited about I think the reason it came across my eye again is because I saw a bunch of influencers posting about it it has the feel of oh look at this cool hack and you know these furniture retailers are trying to take advantage of you and here's how you get the lowest price and so you know this is this is something 
that no one in the industry is necessarily excited about, but I do think it's important to, you know, confront the reality that businesses like this have, uh, you know, have consumers' attention and are increasingly popular on social media. So it's something to, to look at and be aware of. It's uh, spoken.io is how you get that. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. A, a, a useful, a useful tool. Is it being put to good use? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's. The, I mean, the thing is, is that you know, you can get the lowest price, but it's often from a site that maybe doesn't include shipping or you know, there's no one in customer service. And so even even in the retail world where prices are a little bit uh, ambiguous, you do often get what you pay for. And so I think that that's kind of the, the fine print on this site. But even so, it's it's a captivating pr- uh, prospect and people are excited about it. And I think it's just something to keep an eye on. No question. How about you, Dennis? What caught your eye this week? Uh, two things caught my eye, Fred, that I wanted to share. One, interestingly, we were talking about Fred Siegel earlier, which is opening up in the HD Buttercup space, and the founder of HD Buttercup, and also the one-time CEO of ABC Carpet and Home, Evan Cole, uh, has just put a great big 15,000-square-foot house of his up for sale in L.A., and what was striking about it was that he had spent years working on this really spectacular modern architecture house that is right next to the Getty Center and so is is very much intended to look and feel like the Getty. Uh, but upon its completion... Evan never actually moved in, uh, and the family has moved away, and uh, and so it will be it will be as though someone will be getting this house for the very first time if they have the sixty eight million dollars that the house is being put on the market for. But yes, see uh, the housing it, market is loosening up, Dennis. Exactly, <laughs> deals everywhere you look. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that, I thought that was very striking, and uh, and one should certainly go online and look at images of the house, because if you like modern architecture, it is a very striking house. The other thing that I wanted to call out, we've been, we've been waiting to announce the news of the Goo Goo Dolls coming to High Point because we wanted to, we wanted to, we wanted to, I mean, that, that in and of itself is exciting, yes. but wait, yeah. there's more because we finally have the name of the, the names of the two keynotes who will be there and, uh, and they are both, uh, interior design industry giants. So Saturday will be Martin Lawrence Bullard and Sunday will be the one and only Bunny Williams. So if anyone was on the fence about going to High Point in the spring. I mean, the Goo Goo Dolls, Martin Lawrence Bullard, and Bunny Williams. I, I think you got to go. Yeah. What do you think? Name a more iconic lineup. Can we can we get them all on stage at the same time to sing to sing some sort of song together? That would be. Uh... Well, I will be there, and I will certainly try and make that happen. I'm going to send everyone the lyrics to Iris and uh, see if we can make it work. All right. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.